turn our attention this morning to the book of Ruth. And if you are on our email distribution list, you had a little introduction this past week via email to the book of Ruth. This book uh, is a fantastic book for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Ruth is found in the early part of the Old Testament, so I want to ask you to grab a Bible and to open up with me to page 222. And in Ruth, we see a short historical account that reads like a short story. It has tragedy in it. It has pain. It has love. And it is actually at its core a type of love story. And it has great joy. And I love this book because in Ruth we find a variety of human emotions and experiences that we can all relate to. And in that we learn more about ourselves. And in those things we also learn more about the marvelous works of God. This story will eventually point us to the most marvelous work of God, and that is his sacrificial love in the person of Jesus. And so as we turn our attention to uh, Ruth, I want to pray together first, and then what we're going to do this morning is start to tell the story. Chapter 1 is really uh, beginning to tell the story, a backdrop for what is to come over the next couple weeks. And what we'll see this morning are really two key but contrasting ideas And I look forward to exploring them with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together. We thank you for the good work of the Wagners and how we can see and witness uh, the culmination of years of labor in presenting the scriptures to that tribe of Mexico. Uh, Lord, we know that you speak to us, that your word is living and active, that you do your transforming work by the power of your spirit through your spoken word. And we pray that today, no matter where we're at, uh, whether we are in the midst of despair or sadness or bitterness or joy or excitement or anticipation, that you would meet each one where they're at and continue to show them more of yourself, continue to do that transforming work among us, that we would be found faithful to you. And God, that um, that you'd find it your pleasure to rest among your people here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth chapter 1. And we might categorize this first section, verses 1 to 5, under the heading, The Worst Possible Thing Has Happened. Let's read it together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives The name of one was Orpah, and the other was named Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and Malan and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The text tells us that this man, the head of his family, Elimelech, made a decision to move. 
And this decision to move was, in some ways, both a rebellion against God and, in other ways, something that you might be able to practically understand. This is what's happening. Elimelech is, one, is part of one of the tribes of Judah. They have been given their promised land, and in so, uh, he has a place with his clan, with his tribe, in the city of Bethlehem, a city that we're all familiar with. But there's a famine in the land, and so he makes it a decision to move his family to a foreign land, the foreign land of Moab. Moab is a foreign country with foreign gods, and therefore his decision to move was not one that ultimately would have been pleasing to God, because in doing so, what he was saying was, even though with my eyes I see a scarcity of food, God, I see better than you see, and I know how to provide for my family better than you know how to provide for my family. And so I will pick up and I will move to the country of Moab. Now this isn't a particularly surprising decision because as we see, this happened during the days when the judges ruled the earth, or at least the nation of Israel. And if there's one thing that categorizes the time of the judges, it's this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see that theme repeated again and again through the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's not really all that different from today, a time when tolerance reigned, when a multiplicity of perspective was celebrated, but in that, a variety of actions taking place, many conflicting in their moral value, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A rejection of an objective reality or an objective truth or a one true God. Everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. And it seemed right for Elimelech to pick up his family and move to Moab. And so that's exactly what he did. While in Moab, they had some sons. And these sons married Moabite wives. Again, something that wasn't particularly pleasing to God. He told the people of Israel not to marry into the families of foreigners, and the reason for that was the temptation then to worship foreign gods became very evident to them, and yet this is exactly what happened. So they lived there, a full family, a mother, a father, two sons, and two daughter-in-laws. Then the worst thing happened. The patriarch, the one who picked them up and moved them, died. But Naomi was still provided for. I mean, after all, she had two sons. But then her two sons died. And so the story begins with the worst possible thing happening. A family decimated, and we have three widows left in the country of Moab. Was this judgment for their wickedness? Was this the natural consequences of Elimelech's sin Or was it simply God's sovereign will that their days had come to an end and their time on earth was over? These were the questions that we might like to ask, but the answers simply aren't here. But what is here are the many emotions that we can relate to. Some of you have had to pick up and leave a place that you knew, a place that you called home, people that you loved, picked all of your possessions up and moved to what considers considered to be a foreign land like Northeast Ohio. (laughs) And in doing so, maybe you got here (laughs) or to a different place and things weren't all they were cracked up to be. 
your job didn't go the way that you thought it would go, the social networks didn't happen the way that you'd hoped, or maybe your family is struggling in difficulty. I can't relate to that at all. The emotion of Naomi following her husband to this place is very real. But for others of us, we see a different type of emotion as the story goes on, and that is some of the hardest experiences of life, the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child or both. I mean, no words can adequately express the grief that happens in those types of seasons, the sadness, the depression, the anger, the loneliness, the hopelessness that comes when you lose those nearest and dearest to you. And the temptation, the overriding temptation to say, God isn't present in these dark hours. Well, let's look at what happens next. Because as the story continues, we see that God is present, and he's present in a display of self-sacrificial love. Verse 6 says this, Then she, being Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the household of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will not return, or we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We see that the situation in Israel had changed. And it didn't make sense for this Jewish widow to stay in Moab any longer. Food was now prevalent in the land. The famine was over. And so it made sense for this widow to go back home. Because the reality of being a widow in the ancient world was not a pleasant one, particularly at the age of Naomi. At her station in life, almost certainly she would rely on other people the rest of her days to provide for her needs. She would work hard, as we'll see in coming weeks. She would pick up remaining grain in the field. But at the end of her days, to be a widow of her age was a prescription for loneliness. It was a prescription for destitution. It was prescription for an unpleasant end. Didn't make sense for her to stay in Moab. She would go back to Bethlehem where food was available and hope that her clan would take care of her. 
And as much as it made sense for her to go back to Bethlehem, it didn't make sense for her Moabite daughter-in-laws to do so. I mean, think about it. Foreign women from a foreign land coming back into Bethlehem. And surely Jewish men would not want to marry them. They would be hitching their wagon to someone who had nothing to give. And in Naomi's mind, conventional wisdom dictated that they should part ways, that they should leave Naomi, even though it meant that Naomi would indeed be left alone, completely alone, in the hopes that these two young women would go find husbands back in their homeland. And so she blessed them. And recognizing their ongoing kindness to her and her sons. In verse 8, she uses this word that is somewhat lost on us in English, but it's a word that will come to dominate one of the themes of this book of Ruth. We just get a little introduction to it here. Verse 8, she says to them, Go return each of you to your mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. That word for kindness or kindly is a loaded Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed is not something that we translate well in English because it's a combination of a number of ideas all wrapped into one. It's the idea of love. It's the idea of mercy. It's the idea of grace, of kindness, of goodness, of benevolence, of loyalty, of covenant faithfulness. We most often translate this word, steadfast love. And it is most often attributed to God himself. And so we see that these women are wished to have this blessing of God upon them, this hesed, and that they themselves have been exercising it to her and to her sons. And these women were loyal. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the most important things to me in a relationship, two traits come to mind. Honesty, it's hard to have a meaningful relationship if you can't be honest with each other, and loyalty. And here we see the loyalty of these two women. They say, no, we will not leave you. And despite Naomi's blessings, they clung to her in a certain way. But Naomi persisted, didn't she? She could not provide them with the husbands that they needed. She didn't want to bring them into her growing, bitter struggle with God. And so she sent them on their way. I mean, after all, Naomi had started internally to walk down this path. A path of, yes, moving back to her homeland, but a very different type of path. And that was a path of blaming God himself for her misfortune. And bitterness was starting to become part of your life, as she said that she has been convinced that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 13. That's a path that some of us are rather familiar with. We often go there in our greatest hurts, don't we? And it's interesting to note that she mentions that God is able to act in steadfast love and hesed toward these women And she wishes that upon them as they go. But in her own circumstance, she refuses to recognize God's hesed toward her. Instead, she says very plainly, God has gone and raised his hand against me. And that is so often the case. 
for Christians who have been with the Lord for some amount of time, you not only know about God, but you actually know him personally. You've experienced him. You know of his kindness to you. You've enjoyed his blessing, his goodness. He's done wonderful things in your life and even given you each wonderful gifts. But when things go wrong, when your job doesn't go the way that you had hoped, when there's tension in your marriage, when your child is diagnosed with an illness, or when the worst possible thing happens, when the ones closest to you depart from this earth, the temptation is to flip the switch, to stop recognizing God's steadfast love to you and instead say, I blame you for what has happened in my life. My friends, part of the difference here is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God himself. When you know about God, and what I mean by that is when you assent to him intellectually speaking, it is a lot easier to say when God, when things are going my way, God is for me, and when things aren't going my way, then God is against me. But when you actually know him, when you've experienced him, when you've seen his goodness in your life, over seasons and years, it becomes harder to flip that switch and blame him. You're actually better prepared for weathering the storms as they come. I wonder how many of us here today know about God, but don't actually know him. Because when you really know him, Become prepared for these most difficult seasons as they come. Well, we see here that Naomi's persistence worked. Orpah, one of the daughter-in-laws, decided to leave her mother-in-law and go back to her homeland. But Ruth would not go. Look at the contrast. It's striking. Verse 14, it says, They lifted up their voices and they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. One is a, I love you and I'll miss you, but goodbye. And the other is, I'm not going to let you go. And isn't that what loyalty is like? Loyalty in this life is clinging to someone no matter what the circumstances. And here we see this is a God-honoring type of loyalty. What happens next is an oath that Ruth sets out to her mother-in-law. And now we see that this is not just loyalty. Ruth displays something that moves from affection to a loyalty to sacrificial love. Look at it with me in verse 15 and on. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and and more also if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Even if the future has nothing for me, 
I'm going to go with you, she says. I will sacrifice my hopes. I will sacrifice my desire for a, a husband. I will sacrifice my desire for children. I will sacrifice anything and everything to go and to be with you. That is what sacrificial love is. Being willing to give up your own well-being for the well-being of another. Sacrificial love is what keeps husbands and wives married after the emotional intimacy has faded and the butterflies in your stomach are no longer. Sacrificial love is what keeps parents engaged with their children after they've cheated and lied and rebelled. And some of you have said this to your parents, or to your children rather, I love you, but I really don't like you right now. <laughs> Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is something that you give to another person that is unwarranted, it's undeserved, and it's given freely and willingly with no strings attached. I wonder in how many of your relationships sacrificial love exists. Because if you're anything like me, in the depths of my heart, the vast majority of my loving relationships have silent contingencies attached. What am I going to get out of this? But that's not sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is the willingness to step out for another no matter what. Especially if it gives me nothing at all. And here, for a woman, Naomi, who is now growing in her bitterness toward God, we begin to see the very blessing of God. She thinks that God has abandoned her, has turned against her, but right in front of her, is a person who is willing to give everything for her. My friends, this is a spiritual truth that we learn that even in the midst of our bitterness, our anger, our depression, our, our, our hurts, even against God himself, he still extends blessing. And he often uses other people in our lives to do it. Other people to come alongside and help burden, bear the burden even when we don't deserve it. I wonder if you've ever had anybody like that in your life. The first two to three years of my marriage were terrible. The first service laughed at that. Um, they were. They were terrible. Amy and I got married when I was 22 years old and she was 21. Of course, we had no idea what we were doing, but we loved each other. She brought into our marriage a tremendous amount of grief and hurt. Her mother had died in a car accident just a year before, and she was still working through the difficulty of that. I was trying to figure out what it meant to be a good husband while I was still young and stupid. And as a result, we were in trouble. And we had both committed to the Lord that divorce was not an option, that we'd be married for the rest of our life. But I found myself in my quiet moments beginning to say to God, how could you do this to me? I mean, we're trying to follow you. I married a Christian girl. We got marriage counseling beforehand. We did all the right things. We walked down all the right steps. Why is this so hard? I don't think it's supposed to be that way. I mean, after all, I thought there was at least supposed to be a honeymoon period. Our honeymoon itself was terrible. Never mind any sort of glowing first year. 
God, how could you do this to me? And as I think back over that time, and by the way, Amy's not here today, so I can say all that. (laughs) As I think back over those first couple years, I think back specifically now to God's blessing in my life, and his blessing in my life came through a person, through one of my closest friends named Todd. Todd was there when I needed somebody to talk to. Todd was there when I needed somebody to vent. Todd was there when I needed somebody to slap me upside the back of the head and say, keep working hard. This is going to work. God isn't going to abandon you. It's worth it. When I needed encouragement, Todd was there, and he was quick to give it. My friend, God, God gives us people. He gives us people in the midst of our most difficult times, and he gives us these people as a blessing to us. People that exercise sacrificial love, even though there's nothing in it for them. There's nothing in it for Todd, other than to see the Lord work in his friend's life. Some of you can point to that person as it's been in your life, but all of you can be that person in somebody else's life. I wonder if you recognize the time when that's happened to you. I wonder if you know somebody right now that the Lord would use you to bless through a form of sacrificial love. Look with me at verses 19 and on. The story goes on. Naomi walks further down the wrong path. She's becoming more and more bitter, and her bitterness is beginning to blind her to the realities of God in her life. But nevertheless, God continues to bless her, even though she's bitter. Verse 19 says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You can almost see the picture, right? Any of you that have been away from your hometown for some time, you return back home and you begin to see people, family and friends and people you grew up with and people you went to high school with and they say, I haven't seen you in a long time. Is that you, Naomi? What's going on? How's life treating you? What's happening? Tell me all about it. The town is stirred up. And her response indicates the depth of her personal hurt. And now, what is becoming her spiritual bitterness? She says something about her name. You know that names in the Bible have meaning attached to them. They're meant to communicate your, your essence, your, the core of your being. They didn't name kids based on what was popular or sounded cool. They named it because it meant something. The name Naomi means pleasantness. And so she comes back into town. And they say, Naomi, how's it going? And she says, don't call me pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. And the reason why you should call me Mara is because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full. I had a husband. I had children. They had wives. And now I come back to you empty. And I am bitter at God about it. I wonder how Ruth felt about that. The woman that just a short time ago made an oath to her. The woman that says, it doesn't matter what happens in your life, I'll be right there with you. The woman that says, I will give anything and do anything to be with you. And now, Naomi stands before her tribe and says, I have nothing at all. Her bitterness is blinding her to the blessing that is right in front of her. And that's the way spiritual bitterness works. It blinds you to God's blessing. We see another blessing that's happening here that she's completely blinded to. Nowhere in this story are, are the actions of God attributed to the death of, Naomi, of the men in Naomi's life. Nowhere does it say God took their lives. There's one action of God in this story. And that's found in verse 6. The text says that God is the one that brought food back to Israel. He lifted the famine. He restored food to the land. And now this woman who has nothing is able to go back to her land, which has food, to a tribe to care for her, which has food. This, to me, seems like a blessing. But her bitterness is blinding her. She has physical blessing in her provision. She has relational blessing. God is in this loyalty and sacrificial love of this daughter-in-law is a provision from God that she doesn't even see. She went away full, yes. In her grief, she felt empty. But now God is beginning to fill her back up again despite her bitterness toward him. There are so many people in this world who are just like Mara. When difficulty or grief or conflict or pain come upon them, they allow their hurt to move to anger. And when hurt in your life moves to anger, there's really a couple different types of anger, right? There's righteous anger. Sometimes anger isn't a bad thing. And other times we sin in our anger. But if anger is not ultimately dealt with, if the conflicting realities of our mind are not dealt with, the next step of progression is bitterness. From hurt to anger to bitterness. And bitterness is like a disease that's very difficult to cure. It's like a poison that runs through the veins of your life. If you know a person who's bitter, you know that they're no fun to talk to. <laughs> it affects every aspect of your being. It affects your relationships. It affects, it affects your work. It affects your spiritual life. Some of us are bitter towards somebody else because hurts have never been resolved and they've moved to anger and that anger has never been reconciled and therefore we're bitter towards somebody. Some of us are bitter toward God. I've met people that have been bitter toward God for 40, 50 years that have said, God dealt poorly with me and so who am I to submit to him? And at the core of their bitterness is self-absorption. They think that they deserve an answer. They can't come to terms, they can't grasp the fact that in this life there are things that happen that we will not be able to answer. And so they turn bitter. 
And in that way, bitterness at its core is a form of pride. I know that some of us here today have walked down the road of bitterness. And perhaps you're holding on to bitterness toward God even right now. And it's a miracle that you made it to church today. Maybe you're holding on toward bitterness toward another person. And there's nothing more profound that I can say to you than this. You have to let it go. But you say, I don't know how. Bitterness has been part of my life for so long now. I don't know how to let it go. You just said it's a disease that's hard to cure. And there's no simple formula. But the first step in being released of bitterness, whether it's spiritual toward God or relational toward another person, is that of surrender. When you surrender yourself, when you surrender your desires, when you surrender your hopes, when you surrender your hurts and your fears to God, he is the one and the only one who is able to come into those places and meet you right where you are. When you surrender yourself to him and the power of Jesus' love and forgiveness on the cross takes hold of you and you surrender that your perspective is subservient to his sovereign plan, when you surrender yourself to him, then and only then can the seeds of bitterness that have been sown so deeply in us be released. And he's able to do that. That's why Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Hebrews 12, 15, Likewise, see, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many may become defiled. I wonder where you're at today. If that describes you, then the application of this text is very simple. It's time to let it go. Because if you are bitter toward God, you are blinded to his blessings. There's no doubt about it. For those of you who aren't there, thank God that you're not, this text serves as sort of a preemptive warning, doesn't it? It prepares us in a certain way to say, I know that there will be difficult periods in my life that come, and there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God, and when you actually know him and experience him and enjoy him and have his goodness to you over seasons of your life, then when the difficulty comes, the idea of flipping the switch and turning against him is not all that palatable to me because even though I can't reconcile these realities, I know he's good to me. Prepare yourself, Christian, because the day is coming when you will have to make that same choice. And for all of us, the beginning of this story points us to the nature of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love toward others in need. Sacrificial love that we give to people even though it's unappreciated, even though it's unrecognized, even though you get nothing back in return. A love that does not fail, a love that's consistent through the ups and downs of life, a love that you give 
to one another and a love that points to an even higher reality, the sacrificial love that you've received from God himself through the person of Jesus, through the gospel. You know, this part of the story concludes saying that Naomi and Ruth came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that's a little literary clue. There's a new day that's dawning. She went away full. She, came, she found herself empty. She came back and she's being filled up again. And the harvest is ripe and ready to be brought in. And in the meantime, we have the opportunity to consider God's sacrificial love for us. And we do so this morning at the Lord's table. Friends, John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 1 John 3, 16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As our ushers get ready to bring forward the elements, and as we consider the nature of sacrificial love in our own lives, and how God applies that to us, I want to ask you to pray with me as we think through and as we worship, as we remember Jesus Christ, crucified, died, and was buried for the forgiveness of our sins, that we may be restored to God. Let's pray. Father, we see in the beginnings of this book of Ruth a backdrop of sin and tragedy and glimmers of hope and wonderful loyalty and incredible love. And of course, this points us to the fact that you had nothing to gain through the sacrifice of your son to us. But yet you chose to redeem so many for the sake of your own glory, because of your sacrificial love. And that's what we celebrate today. And in that we worship you. God, we recognize that we do not keep up our end of the bargain, that we still sin, that even this week, even this morning we've sinned. And we pray now, in the quietness of our hearts and our minds, confessing those sins to you and asking again that your love and grace and mercy be applied to us.